Good morning, everybody. It's a joy and an honor to welcome you here. My name is Peter Botros. I'm one of the pastors. And um, it's, uh, it's an absolute joy to have you with us, whether you're a newcomer, whether you've been here for a long time. It is my hope and prayer today that the Lord would connect with you in a profound way. We're in the midst of a, uh, a season of prayer and fasting, and, and it's my heart's prayer that every single one of us would encounter God in a new way. Well, today we are going to start a new series called The Adventure. And, and I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes, especially around theme parks, there are two types of people. Those who are adventurous and those who are reasonable. And uh, I am on the other side, extremely on the other side of being reasonable. So when we go out as a family into a, a, a theme park or, or whatever it might be, a, a carnival, I'm always the one that holds, holds the bags and take, captures the photos. And it was only a couple of years ago or so we were in Phillip Island, and the kids found this carnival that they wanted to go to, uh, and I obliged, and I tagged along, and they were going, you know, Susie also loves some of this, uh, uh, you know, thrill-giving type of uh, adventures, and uh, they were going around, uh, being the, the, the good mom, she was jumping with them on the scary rides, partially, in my opinion, they were scary, but to them, they were boring. Uh, but then Susie wanted me to feel like I'm partially a good dad. So towards the end of the night, she said to me, listen, we've done all the hard rides, and now this like merry-go-round type of a ride that our little Conan, who was at the time, I don't know, seven or eight or something like that, would like to enjoy at the very end. But Luke and, and, and Jira think it's so, you know, so easy, so boring. So they don't want to go on to it. Would you like to get on board? I said, you know, what the heck? It's no problem. Mary, go around. Uh, so I jumped on board until the guy pressed the button to go around in circle. Oh, Ivan, you're an amazing man. Thank you. Um, and as he pressed the button, it felt like somebody injected me with energy drink but has drowsy effects. So it was like drowsiness on hype. And I, every time the thing went round, I saw everything blurry. I'm always scared of ride, not, not, not merely because of the speed, but because I always think about the mechanical failures that are just about to happen as soon as I step on those rides. So uh, there we, we have Kanan on my left. He's smiling from ear to ear, and I'm holding on him for dear life, and I'm shouting to the guy, yes, I was scared holding on to my eight-year-old kid, and I'm shouting to the guy, stop it, stop it, stop it, and as if I'm really scared for my son, and he looks at me like this, the guy was so cool, he looks at me like this, and says, your son is more courageous than you, I could see the guy, is just standing there next to the rod, like I wanted to throw something at him, but I do not like those adventurous rides, because I count the risk, what is the likelihood of me enjoying myself for five minutes, and losing a limb for the rest of my life if there is mechanical failures. And maybe we laugh, but life is an adventure. And every single one of us has to make a decision about what type of adventure we take. And whether you have 
may be articulated in that way or not, you and I are risk assessors. And we look at every adventure, and, and life is full of different adventures, big adventures and little adventures. In fact, most of our decisions lead us toward one adventure or another, and we have got an internal radar uh, at OH&S type of a, a risk assessment to every arena of life, and we'll say, okay, do I go this way or that way? And it's, uh, it's not only in fun things, but in life I have experienced the same tension that comes with assessing my adventures. I recall uh, coming from Egypt where it was a hard-going type of lifestyle, particularly with my dad being in ministry and in a minority Christian country. And there's a lot of persecution to the Christians, subtle and exaggerated. And uh, my only hope and dream for an adventure in Australia even though I couldn't speak the language, I didn't know anybody, and I couldn't even get myself around. But my only hope, the dream, the adventure, the destination was to live a secure, safe life. Not threatened by police and unfair accusations and probably imprisonment. And as, uh, as I grew up here, I came here in 1989, around 1994, I got married and and we were living the normal lifestyle that a married couple would live. You know, you just go to work, you come back, you've got friends who are actually part of a church as well and were doing some ministry. But it was just part and parcel of an adventure of a normal life. Up until 1996, I remember it was a Saturday morning and it was in April 1996. I have been studying the scripture just by myself. Back in the day, I don't think many of, uh, of the younger people will remember this thing called concordance. And you look at the verses because there was no Google. And uh, I got every verse that I could manage to find that, that had the word reveal. I was so desperate for God to reveal himself to me in a personal way. And I studied those words, and I remember that Saturday morning, I had woken up in the morning and, and was spending time with God, and I had to go to work. I was managing uh, a store in Footscray, and, and uh, as I went there, I usually sat in the back of, of, of the office whilst the uh, people in the front doing the retail, and I was so occupied with what I've been reading. I, was, I honestly don't deserve to have been paid that day, but it wasn't a lot, so don't worry about it. Um, and I was so occupied with that concept of revelation until I went home and I continued. I took the Bible with me. I was, you know, in one bedroom apartment. I was just reading like crazy. And there and then, God spoke into me. And you might think it was delusional, whatever it might be, but for my naive mind, I felt God whisper into my life something that was profound. And I felt God say to me that, that I will be in full-time ministry. And for me, it was, a, it was a bit of a shock because we never wanted it, we never intended it, we never thought about it, we never prayed about it. In fact, when I told Susie, and I can't remember how long it took me to, to, to gain the courage to tell Susie, we're only been married for two and so years, and, and she cried for weeks. I kid you not, she cried for weeks. Not only that, she, uh, she contacted my dad who lived in England at the time and she begged him to convince me not even to consider this concept. Why? Because the reality was that the only understanding they have of, 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 a, of a person in, 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 in a leadership in a church was the experiences that we had with my dad. 
who had a really hard time in the church, who, uh, who had a vision to help people live for Jesus wholeheartedly. And within the church and outside the church, he was hammered, he was mis- misunderstood, he was betrayed, nitpicking, controlling, manipulative people. And churches the worldwide are full of those, not our church, of course. But uh, uh, that's roughly what happens when, when people step into ministry with a vision. You, fo- you find people who are power-hungry, that tries to bring them down as soon as they can. So Susie said, why the heck would you want to put yourself in that position? So the, being the man of courage and, and faith that I was, in about a year's time or so, we started a business in video production. Just as far away from ministry as possible. And it was a comfortable life after about two years. Obviously, the first two years in any business is a hard going. But then after that, we, we, we really had a, a good time. And Cece didn't need to work. And, and it was, a, it was a, a thriving business for a period of time. But starting from 2003 to 2005, God hammered me one time after another, especially during the time of my fasting, with giving me a vision beyond my current circumstances. And the question that always haunted me for those three years with excitement about what could be, but the tension of what might happen to me if I pursue God's vision was a dilemma that you and I always face. And it is the very thing that causes you to go to one adventure or another. Maybe, just maybe, this will be a revelation to somebody today. And it's two words. Pleasure versus pain. Pleasure versus pain. Whenever we think about our adventures in life, we calculate the pleasure versus pain balance. We try to see how much can we manage to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. And you don't know that this is in the background causing you to make simple decisions and big decisions, causing me to make simple decisions and big decisions toward the adventure that you and I take because we are all on some sort of an adventure. And based on the balance, based on what's skewing your, uh, your decision, whether it's pleasure or pain, you make adjustments to take on a particular adventure. And today I'm cautiously excited because I know when we talk about adventures in life, we've got diverse backgrounds. We've got people who are right in this room who are on the adventures of their lives. They have found something that they were born for. They've got the passion and the motivation, that thing which turns their mundane activities into meaningful experiences, regardless of how small and difficult and uphill type of activities. But they know, and if they had the chance to stand up here, I get the privilege to have the microphone, but if they stood up here with us, they will tell you it's worth every ounce of pain that's required. And you look at them and it's like, you're crazy. Why would you get on that merry-go-round? It makes you dizzy. It makes you scared. 
the pain isn't worth it. But there's others of us here who may be a little bit older and, 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 and they got on the bandwagon of finding an adventure at one, once upon a time, but because of life's experiences and because of the traumas that we all go through and the challenges and misunderstandings and the betrayals and, and everything else that involves in, in some type of failure or discouragement, we get this illusion that anybody that stands up here and speaks about an adventure, you say, yeah, I've heard it before, you're too young, you don't know what you're talking about, you've not been through life's experience that I've been through, friends, maybe I haven't, but I tell you, when it comes to adventure, I've seen the worst that possibly could happen when somebody experienced adventure, when our family experienced a year of being in imprisonment, when my father was in imprisonment for one whole year and the other time would have been for life. He was one of three people that were meant to be hung, not just killed, but hung in the times of Anwar Sadat in Egypt. And I'm telling you, maybe you've had difficult experiences, but I'm telling you, somehow the enemy tricked you that it's not worth it. And you stand here and you say, I'm not interested to hear people talking about adventures. And you know what? I know this is a four-week series. You'll see me in five weeks' time. And, And I fully understand. I fully understand that when we get discouraged and disheartened, it is hard to hear this stuff because it brings back memories of the days where you wish something profound would happen, where maybe you you took on an adventure and you thought, this is going to be for the rest of my life, but you tumbled so badly that you never want to hear about it again. And many of us, others of us, may have seen people who have declared their adventures and their vision and declared their, their, what God has put in their heart or whatever dreams that they had in mind. And, and as they say in, in, in the literature, when you hear about a vision, 20% support it, uh, 50% say, yeah, one really doesn't think, yeah, but yeah, we'll see. And then, you know, the rest say it won't happen. And maybe you're one of those people who have already shut down the adventure that you could potentially take on board. And you've become, over time, and they say in the cycle of the brain, if you take that, that fear type of, of road, after 63 days, you gradually turn backward and deteriorate so badly that maybe, just maybe, you become a nitpicker. And whenever you hear or you see or you read about someone who's into vision and adventures that beyond the mundane life of going to work and coming back and making a living, maybe you try to pull them down because it self-validates you. I want to tell you, if you're a person that puts others down and subtly try to manipulate others who are actually going for something big in life, I want to tell you that speaks of you, not of them. And you need to hear that. If every time somebody's trying something profound and you try to find all the reasons why they are doing this for the wrong reason, with the wrong motives, and they're never going to make it, and they are annoying and this and that, and deep within you, maybe you don't say it out loud, but you want to punch them and, and, and knock that enthusiasm out of them, you know that it's because you're hurt that you're not nitpicking, you're not living for your adventure. So... Taking all this, acknowledging the scope of our different experiences and current motivation, I take the risk of maybe calling one or two people 
that are willing to live for the adventure of a lifetime. Who are going to look at the pleasure and the pain scale and say, I'm going to do what is worth it. Not merely what's pleasurable. I tell you what's pleasurable. There are three main things that we all look for. The first one is comfort. You know, people who are looking for a pleasurable lifestyle, the first thing that they look for is comfort. They want peace in life. They want ease, in other words. They don't want their life to be shaken by challenges and whatever decisions they make. They say, is this going to bring confrontation? Is this going to bring difficulty? Is this people going to misunderstanding? Is this going to have any risk of failure? I'm not doing it. I want to live in comfort. Others of us want to live in dignity. They want to hang around the right people. They want to be in the right jobs, in the right positions. They want to be known with a reputation that makes others, yeah, you think people are looking at oh, you, you know, you're just God's gift to heaven. Uh, the, the reality is, this is what sometimes derives our adventures. And some of us, without saying it, we're pursuing the adventure of wealth. Why? Because it gives us control over our future. And we think it might even give us control over our relationships. Friends. If you're pursuing anything around that, I want to tell you, that's nothing abnormal. That's, you're not weird, you're not difficult, you're not mad. You're simply trying to calculate the risk of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. And that's the adventure you're on. But you probably have seen people who have skewed the scale who didn't just go for an adventure because it was pleasurable, but they've gone for an adventure because it was worth it, despite of the pain that they acknowledge they may endure. And you look at them and you say, they are nuts. What makes these people want to do what's difficult? What makes these people endure challenges of life? What makes these people pursue something against the odds? What makes these people take on that challenge of enduring pain for the sake of an adventure in life? And there's a guy that we're going to look at, at him for the next four weeks. His name is Nehemiah. He's an ancient historic figure from the biblical narrative. And he was basically a person who lived in the times of history known as the post-exilic community. And I'm just going to give you a quick history lesson for a second. You know how... Uh, you know, Israel was an amazing gold, uh, you know, amazing kingdom. In the golden era was the days of, of David and his son Solomon. We talked about him last week. And then uh, after Solomon in 1960 or so, actually some, sometimes people say um, uh, even around 1930, 1931, the kingdom got divided uh, into the Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And after a while, these people began to worship pagans. Uh, they, they really mistreated and mi uh, disobeyed God. And the kings of the northern in particular were incredibly wicked and e uh, evil. And, and the southern kingdom were, were, were lagging behind, but they also uh, picked up the, the wickedness and they really disobeyed God. And I want to tell you, God does not honor disobedient people. He kept sending them prophet after prophet for almost a thousand years, you know, uh, you know telling them to live the life uh, that God has called them to live, but they, they rebelled so badly. So around 606, 605, they started. God sent uh, uh, you, you know, the invaders into uh, you know, Israel. We find actually in 722, the northern kingdom was taken. You know, people were exiled. 
and, and we don't hear about them anymore. They were the ten tribes. But then Judah, later on, uh, around 606, 605, they, they had some invasion from the Babylonians. And then around 530, uh, 530 uh, no, 586, uh, the temple was, was, uh, uh, was demolished. The temple of Solomon was demolished. And, and, and many people from uh, Israel, from Judah, were taken to Babylon. And that was the habits of the Babylonians. They will take the people that they invade. They take two-thirds and they leave a third uh, to be impoverished in their own land. And, and they took them in Babylon. And this ex- exile lasted about 70 years from the first time of the, uh, uh, of the deportation. And, uh, and there in that time, uh, the people of God were so messed up, they realized that they were uh, receiving the punishment for their own rebellion. In fact, uh, Babylon was such a pagan environment, it's almost God is saying, you want to follow pagans' uh, religious practices? Well, I'm going to send you to the center of paganism. Enjoy, enjoy. And then finally, around 539, uh, the Persian king Cyrus took over Babylon and he released uh, whoever out of the Jews would like to go back to Jerusalem and build their temple. And around 538, Zerubbabel and other uh, scholars, Shishbasher, uh, try to say that quickly, uh, a guy named Shishbasher, actually took uh, the first wave of retainees, uh, the people that returned uh, to build the temple. And uh, in about 516, they actually built the temple. But many people stayed behind in Babylon, of which Nehemiah was one of those people that stayed behind until about 444, 445, when Nehemiah went back. But today, we're going to look at the, the person of Nehemiah and what happened in his life as he confronted two adventures that God put place, placed before him. Nehemiah is known in, the, in his book, or, or maybe it's written by, a, uh, by an, an editor taking some of his uh, uh, own uh, uh, memories and, and put it together. They, they, they say that the book of Ezra and book of Nehemiah were... Uh, were actually combined in the Hebrew canon, and uh, it's, it ends the historical books about the times of Israel, particularly in the times of the post-exilic community. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer. A cupbearer, roughly, and, and I'm going to use this as an illustration because I'm thirsty. Apparently, the cupbearers were people that were employed. Uh, because of their character, integrity, and administrative excellence, they were like the confidant to the king, uh, the, 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 king uh, the Persian king. And uh, in order for the king to make sure that he's safe, there was somebody that he trusted will, uh, will taste his wine before the king will drink it. And the king will wait and watch. If the guy drops dead, that means, you know, he saved him from an assassination or whatever it might be. Uh, but if, uh, you know, that person was a real uh, person of authority, was a real person of caliber in that palace. So Nehemiah rose up in ranks and he was uh, admired and esteemed and he was made almost the second in the charge uh, to the king uh, of Persia at the time. And uh, he was living the dream. 
He was living the very adventure that you and I look forward to live. The first thing, he experienced comfort in the palace. You can imagine how life would be in the palace of the great king of Persia. They were a powerful, powerful force. And here you've got the king himself and your second hand to him. Whatever he ate, you ate. Whatever security were around, you're experiencing the same security. Other than the wine that, you might, that might kill you. Other than that, you were having the best life possible. You were having all the luxuries and the comfort. What, who would ask for anything more? The guy climbed the greatest corporate ladder you could ever think of. He was experiencing comfort in the palace. He was also experiencing a ridiculous dignity. Everybody that heard the name Nehemiah, saw Nehemiah in the streets, they would say, oh, he's the man. He's the man. He's the connected man. He had value. He had, he, he, he had the, 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 the king's authority alongside him. He has a position of value and dignity. And also he had wealth. Because one big thing that you need to know, the people that didn't return to Jerusalem to build the temple, the only reason they stayed in Babylon, because they were prospering. They were prospering so much. In fact, it's written that a century later, one of a Jewish family started the first banking house in the history of the world. That's how prosperous they were. So they chose to stay behind in Babylon rather than go back and help the temple rebuild, uh, the rebuilding of the temple. So they, he was enjoying the dream that you and I somehow attempt to live for. He was living on some amazingly worldly adventure and he had it all secure. And you know what? That's exactly what he thought, but maybe that's not what other people have thought of him. You know, those people that want to live in comfort and ease others from the outside, look at them and say, they're just living such a boring life. They don't have any element of courage to do something. They, we, 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 we used to, to hear when we were young, people say they are waste of oxygen. You know, they're not really worth the oxygen that they're breathing because they're just living such an easy peasy type of meaningless life. Maybe for others, when they look at people who are connected in positions and derive their value from positions and derive their value from the people that they're connected to, they feel great, but people are looking at them and saying, you obviously don't feel valued because you need something else to add value to you. So it might look all right in the mirror, but people outside, they smell it so much better. Maybe he's experiencing wealth that gives him an, an element of control and about his future and whatever. And, and, and you know, those people that, that feel that their, their wealth is basically all that they need, you from the outside look at that and say, you have no idea that that won't give you the control that you have because controlling people anyway are living a delusional life. Until the day God hit Nehemiah between the eyes. He was sitting there in Susa. It's the winter uh, uh, palace uh, area for, for, for the Persian Empire. And then he had some relatives come in, uh, potentially his very own brother or a cousin. And here is how chapter 1 of Nehemiah goes. It says, The words of Nehemiah, uh, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is, I think, November, December, in the 20th year of the king's reign, while I was in uh, in Susa, Haniah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some, others, some other men, and I questioned them about the Jew, Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. 
they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. And what happened there, God put a torch, put a fire underneath uh, this man named Nehemiah and said, Okay, you have an ability to stay where you are and enjoy your adventure. Or there is something more meaningful that you can live for. There is something more profound that you can do in life. Because your people, your friends are experiencing a very hard time back home. The people that you love, not only was he uh, concerned about what happened in his city. Because when there is broken walls, every, every city that didn't have a, a wall. They were defenseless. And the temple was built, but the temple could be easily ruined because the city was defenseless. And the economy was completely ruined because people could just walk in and raid it at any time. So he was so concerned about the reputation of God and the people that he lived with. That birthed with him a vision of what could be and what should be. So I want to tell you three things that happened to him. We're going to fast forward a couple of slides. I want to tell you a couple of things that happened to Nehemiah before we finish off that helps you and I to know when you get a vision from God. The first thing, he went. You see, the vision that God gave him of what could be, it gripped him so badly, he simply could not ignore it. Yes, I'm having the adventure of my life, but when God dumps onto you something that's bigger than who you are, you will endure the pain regardless of the pleasure promised because the fact is it grips your heart. It says that when I heard these things, when he heard what happens in Jerusalem and the difficulty that is surrounding his people, when we heard the reputation of God was at risk, he sat down and wept. It gripped him. He is a man of great administrative skills. He is a man that is, you know, powerful and a confident of the king. He wept because it gripped him. Friends, when you get a vision for your life, an adventure for your life from God, it will grip you. You can't let go of it and it, will, and it can't let go of you. The second thing, he worshipped. He worshipped. It says that, that, that for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What happened? He understood what was around him, but he focused upward. He understood what was around him, what was surrounding him, but instead of focusing merely on the horizontal, he started focusing on the vertical and said, God, and he beautiful prayer, saying that, God, you're an all an aspiring. You're an awesome God. You're a God beyond everybody's imagination. He put his entire situation in God's hand, asking God to do something in him and something through him. When you worship, it frees us. The vision frees us from self-centered living. The adventure that you create for yourself, ultimately it's about you. Ultimately, it's about your comfort. Ultimately, it's about your dignity. And ultimately, it's about your control. But when you receive a vision from God, you will literally say, it's not about me. Life isn't about me. The last thing that I want to share quickly is that he not only he waited, he did not only uh, uh, worship, but he waited. The vision, it changed his heart 
and it changed his adventure. It's written there in chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, that means four months later, in the twelfth year of, uh, of the king, I had, not, uh, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can, can be nothing but sadness of heart. This can be nothing. It changed his heart. His circumstances were so uh, comfortable and so easy and so prestigious and so powerful, but it did something. It wrecked his heart from the inside. He wanted to do something bigger than what he was currently doing. Friends, when you take an adventure with God, it will change you. You'll have to wait. Because vision has to mature inside of you. You have to mature for the vision and God has to prepare the way. It doesn't happen immediately like that. The bigger the vision is, you have to wait. Because God has to do something in you before he can do something through you. The adventure becomes like a burden that sits on you. An adventure becomes like a burden that takes over your life, doesn't it? It becomes that you cannot let go of it. You cannot necessarily say, oh yeah, I'm moved by this idea, but you know, I've got my own adventure. It takes God himself to move us from our worldly adventures and sets us on a wild adventure. Today, friends, I want to ask you for one little thing. I believe God is inviting you and inviting me to forsake our worldly adventure in order to go on with God for a wild adventure. What are you doing here, Dean? Huh? Hi, Peter. What are you doing here, mate? Um, I've just had a wild adventure, actually. You had a wild adventure? Oh, you betcha. Oh, well, what have you been doing? Um, I've actually been traveling around the world on missions for about seven months. How um, did that all start, Dean? Well, see, the thing was, I'm, I wasn't actually into missions. I knew nothing about it. I was always focused on the church. I was a part of worship and kids' ministry and youth. And my horizons were never to share the gospel outside of the church. Um, but then some of my friends invited me along to this event one night. And it was at a church nearby. Yeah. And the speaker was talking about, you know, to the young people and like telling us the Great Commission and the call on our generation to rise up and go out and not just attend church, but go and be the church. And I felt that night God just said, like, Dean, this is for you. And it really changed my heart. And then from that moment on, everything I wanted to do just seemed so dull compared to going out and sharing the gospel with people. And then I had no idea how to do it, though. And then in the next two months after that, it seemed like every single person that I'd met uh, was a part of this thing called YWAM, uh, which stands for Youth with a Mission. And it's this, I found out that it's this global organization, a missions organization, which sends millions of young people all across the world to nearly every single country to go and spread the gospel of Jesus. And that night, uh, my friends told me about it, and I heard God very clearly say to me, like, Dean, this is for you. Like, I want you to step out in faith and trust me with this. Wow. Um, and then I, through a lot of prayer and wrestling with God, because I was like, it's, it's different. I have to give up everything back here, everything at home. But I, that tug was too much, and I was like, I have to. So I signed up, and I went, and I did mine overseas in America, in a place called Kansas City. And for the last seven months now, I've been... You get like training for a few months and we go out and practically learn in the missions field. And I've been all across the world in the last uh, seven months and um, that time was incredible. But it wasn't what I thought it was going to be at first. I thought it was going to be really hype and crazy and all these you know, 
hundreds of thousands of young people were just crazy after God, uh, which it was. But um, I forgot all the other logistic things, like the, the culture difference between yeah. Australia and America and the fact that we're very, very different, actually. <laughs> and uh, how hard it was to actually um, make friends in, and, and, and uh, engage in that environment. So for me, it was very, for the last seven months, it's been very uh, humbling. And it was just me and God for yeah. seven months, just him and me. Mm-hmm. And it's not what I thought it was going to be at mm-hmm. all. Having said, okay, yes, God, I'll do it. I'll just dive in and see what you've got for me. Yeah. It's not what I thought it was going to be, but it's exactly what God knew it had to be for me. Wow. And that in turn just changed, changed my life uh, in the way that now I, I in, in, in my time in YWAM, God very specifically called me to missions, to be one who's going to travel the world and go to those places and, and tell people about him. And then it was a continual thing of having to say, okay, yes, God, I continue every day to surrender what I want to do because what you want me to do is way more important. So I... Now, actually, I'm still stepping out, continuing with missions. So actually, tomorrow, um, I fly around the world to the Caribbean, to a country called Barbados. And yeah. um, I'm being a part of a massive event there where we, for two months, are just going to saturate the whole country. And we're going to preach a gospel to over 60-plus percent of the whole population. Wow. And just seeing how God has opened the doors um, for what he's asked me to do when I've just simply given in and just said, okay, yes, like your adventure is so much more better than my plans could ever be. Yeah. And... Man, the wild adventure has just begun, yeah. but oh, God is just blows my mind every day that he wants to partner with, partner with me and allow me to do this. That is absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. And maybe, just maybe, stay with me, Dean. Maybe, just maybe today, God is calling you back to the adventure that you were once on. Maybe today God is calling you back to let go of that video production comfortable place so that you can take on board His dream for your life. You come to church. You're being a good Christian. You're investing in your family. And maybe God is calling you to something that will blow your mind regardless of your age, regardless of your background, and let me tell you, regardless of the people that will support you. So in just a few seconds, we're going to have Dean pray over us. And then we're going to sing one last song that says, Lord, where you lead me. Even when there is no borders, where there is nothing that I can trust, where it's uncomfortable and uncertain, I'm, I'm going to come alongside. Only that surrendered heart will allow God to speak his vision into your life. When Dean was telling me his story, he told me that he basically had to obey a little bit and then slowly God clarified the pathway and he was honorable enough to obey. What about you? Would today be the day that simply you forsake your great worldly adventures in order to participate even if you don't know it yet in order to participate in God's wild adventure please be upstanding I'm going to ask Dean to pray for us and then we're going to sing one last song yeah Father God I just thank you so much that um, all you ask us to do is just to be obedient Father you don't ask us to um, live for ourselves but to live for you God I mean you died for us the least I can do is live the way you want me to so, Father, I just pray um, over all of us here, God, our church family, and 
even just the wider body of church all across the world, God, would you just really speak to each of us, God, for the plans and the purpose and the wild adventure that you have for every single one of us. For me, it is traveling the world. For others, it's so many different unique things that you've created them around, God. You've created them to fulfill your will, your purpose on earth, God. And I just ask, would you target every single one of our hearts um, of what you want us to do, God, what we're here for? It's one of the biggest questions in life, God. And I just thank you that you have a plan, you have a purpose, as it says in Jeremiah 29, 11, to prosper us and not to harm us, God. So I pray, would you just really be speaking to every one of us in this time, God? Uh, it doesn't matter what age we are, God. It doesn't matter um, what we've done in our past. All that matters is our willingness to just give up and just say yes. Just give in to live completely surrendered to you, God. We're only here for a blink of an eye anyway on earth, God. So I pray, would you really just be talking to every single one of us, Father, and be raising, it up, raising us up to be disciple makers in, this, in the world, God. I thank you for every single person here, Father, and the plans and the purpose you have for every single one of them. Jesus.